0: today to lead you in considering the subject of the Holy Spirit. We are preaching through the Gospel of John. Having come to the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters of that Gospel, we have determined to camp there for a while and concentrate on the primary theme of that section of the Gospel, which is the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the Church of Christ by virtue of his obedience and his triumph, and his grace to his people. We have considered much regarding the person and the work of the Spirit, and now under the the subject of his work, we are studying the biblical doctrine of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not gifts, plural, but the gift from which arises, or arise the gifts, plural, The giving of the Holy Spirit. Last time we saw something of the biblical witness regarding his coming to the church. We surveyed the Old Testament doctrine of the Spirit of God and saw that he was involved in the corporate life of the people of God. We saw that he did anoint the servant, or was uh, prophesied to anoint the servant of God, the Lord Jesus. He was promised to come and abide with the people of God forever. He did indwell individual believers in the Old Covenant, and at times came upon individuals in extraordinary power for service and feats in which God was glorified. Then we surveyed the New Testament doctrine by looking at several passages regarding the fulfillment of that promise in the words of Christ himself and his own prophecy, In that fulfillment, in the book of Acts, which we read, in the individual indwelling of each believer by the Holy Spirit, and finally the spiritual endowment of the church by the Spirit of God for service, we noted that each Christian in the church of Christ has been endowed with a gift for service, and that there is no believer who has not given by the Spirit something with which he may profit the whole church. The Spirit is at work as the quartermaster of service in building up the body of Christ. And then we also noted that we must not confuse the doctrine of the baptism of the Spirit with the doctrine of regeneration, nor should we so separate those two things as to make them uh, not related intrinsically. We learned that all those who are regenerated by the Spirit also receive the gift of the Spirit, And we saw so clearly in the book of Acts, chapters 10 and 11, that the Bible equates the doctrine of the gift of the Spirit with the baptism of the Spirit. They are one and the same thing. The word baptism becomes a word picture, along with some other words used in the New Testament, to describe the gift of the Spirit. Well, this morning, in our further consideration of this very serious and blessed topic, We are going to take up the idea, in the first place, of the gift of the Spirit, and in the second place, enumerate and briefly consider many of the benefits from His being given to the Church. The idea of the Spirit, or the concept or conception of the Holy Spirit's gift to the Church, and the benefit, or benefits, that the Church receives because of Him. Before we come to pray, though, I want us to turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 9, verse 31, and then Romans chapter 15. First of all, Acts 9, verse 31. I remind you as you turn to this text that we are well aware of our inadequacy in dealing with such a doctrine. We are acquainted with the frailties of the flesh, and even as we study the things we're studying and say the things we say. We are cognizant that our hearts are not even large enough to receive what we hear with our ears. We are at once blessed by what we hear and yet grieved that we are so unable to receive what we ought to be able to receive and what hopefully as we grow we will be able to receive. We also are at least humble enough to confess that we don't understand everything about the ministry and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, we must be careful and always approach such a subject with very much care and diligence. Having said that, read with me verse 31 of Acts chapter 9. After having relieved uh, the church of this onslaught of Saul who was breathing out Slaughter against the church by saving the persecutor. We read in verse 31, The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. Being edified or built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit was multiplied. Walking in the fear of the Lord and alongside that in the comfort of the Holy Spirit was multiplied. Then turn with me to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15, verse 13. Having spoken of the promised blessing of God upon the Gentiles. In this section of concluding remarks in the the epistle to the Romans, how that God had glorified himself in getting praise from the Gentiles through the gospel, through the root of Jesse in verse 12. We read in verse 13 this benediction and prayer of Paul for the church at Rome and also for us. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope, in the power of the Holy Spirit. In the context of the gospel and its benefits and fruit, we are urged with an encouraging benediction to seek and desire and welcome and it is wished upon us and prayed for us that we not merely be survivors, that we not merely be people who suffer through limping in this world with up and down consistency and that our spirit not be one marked by pessimism, bitterness, sourness, this suspicion of brethren, but that it be marked with all joy and peace in believing that we may abound in hope and all of that in the context of the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is when that is not present that the other things are. And it is in when that is present That these matters of verse 13 are the possession and the practice of the church for which the Lord Jesus shed his blood. Now then again, let's turn together to the Lord and ask his help in considering these matters. Our Father, we would pray that our very hearts may so learn the truth regarding your spirit that we ourselves may enjoy him and his work. And may our church, O God of grace, with all of our problem and weakness, with all of our sins and immaturity, with all of our struggle, we would ask you through the cloud of our weakness and our trembling, that you, the God of hope, would fill us with all joy and peace in believing, and that we, we as a congregation may abound in hope in the power of the Holy Spirit. O oh God, teach us now and draw near by that Spirit that we may learn readily and humble ourselves in obedience to you, that we may know what it means to walk in the comfort of the Spirit. Hear us, O oh God. And supply what's lacking in us. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. First of all let us consider today. The idea. Or the concept. Or conception. Of the gift of the Holy Spirit. This concept of God giving his spirit. May be summarized in about five items. First of all. Notice with me the giver and the source of the gift of the Spirit. The giver and the source. And it is none other than the God of all comfort, the God omnipresent himself. The God whom we worship and whom we've learned about is present everywhere. There is no place in the earth or the heaven or beneath them to which a man may fly, Away from the eye and the presence of God. The psalmist cried that he could have the wings of a dove and fly away into the wilderness. But even there he knew that he would confront the Lord. He knew that God knew every thought, every word in his tongue before it was spoken, every hair of his head, every cell in his body even before they were formed. God is everywhere. And it is that God who is everywhere who also has promised to be especially present with his people. He is present everywhere, but there is a special presence with his people. And that presence is through his Holy Spirit, given to his people. And so God, in the giving of his Spirit, has made the church to know what it means to live in his glad and felt presence, and to enjoy the comfort of the God of all comfort. Look with me briefly at simply three passages. First, John chapter 14, to see that this is the biblical doctrine of something of the gist of the ministry of the Spirit of God. John 14, which we've seen in the past. Verse 16 and following. Our Lord assuring us upon his planned soon departure, giving much encouragement to the apostles. Find the encouragement in these words. Verse 16, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter. Now the word there is paraclete or paraklel, or paraklesis, the word that is translated comforter, one called alongside us to abide with us. And yet the, the translation is a good one. It doesn't comprehend the whole subject, but it catches the result of that in the Spirit's presence with His people. He is not coming alongside us in order to bother us, primarily not coming to frighten us, but coming to comfort. His presence with us is that of a comforter. So that in the translation, the translators knew the sense and the essence of his ministry and called him the comforter. That he may be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. For it beholds him not, neither knows him. You know him. For he abides with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you desolate or orphaned. I come unto you. The Lord is promising that there is a sense in which, may we say a glorious sense in which the church is to have his presence through his spirit in a way that the world does not have it. They do not know him. They cannot see him or know him, but we do. He abides with us in a way that he does not abide with them. Second, turn with me to Second Corinthians chapter 1. From whom does this comfort come? It comes from the God of all comfort. Second Corinthians chapter 1 verse 3. Here is an apostle who is under great internal stress. He has had a lot of suffering. His ministry has cost him. The message which he has preached has brought about great persecution. He wears in his own body scars from wounds received for the name of Christ and Christ's grace. And now he is facing the resistance of brethren in the church whom he himself founded by his preaching of the gospel, who instead of being thankful to him and instead of loving him and seeking his best are actually militating against his rights as an apostle and his authority over the church and his integrity itself. So he says in verse 3 of Second Corinthians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, that we may be able to comfort them that are in any affliction, through the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound unto us, even so our comfort also abounds through Christ. So the way that God deals with his people in affliction is in abounding comfort to them. And the way in which that is carried out is in His Spirit who is near to them and present with them and giving aid to them even while they suffer others' rejection. May we learn what it means to enjoy the comforting, the abounding comfort of the Spirit of God. And without turning, one other verse we refer to, the one we just read in Acts, that the church was being comforted in the Holy Spirit. It was a definition of their life together, that in God's presence among them, which the world did not have, though God is present among the world, this presence, this special presence, only the church had, and they abounded and walked in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if we know a lot about what that means, but the little taste that we've had of that would make us to desire much more of it. It is what ought to be ordinary in the church, and the God of all comfort knows how to supply it. You can imagine what it was like in that church. They were being killed, dragged off into prison. The old man saw the rabbi was running after them, breathing out threatenings and slaughters. How were they going to survive this Soon after Christ had established his church, there was some thought that maybe she would be snuffed from the face of the earth. The Lord, it wasn't because of members quitting. It wasn't because of apostasy. It was because of persecution. Leaders were being killed. And now Paul is after the rest to stop the worship of God, to destroy the meetings of the church and where he could find Christians turn them over to the Sanhedrin and have them arrested and silenced. Well, what a day in which to live. There was no small need of comfort. How did God give it? He gave it through His Spirit. The Holy Spirit lived among them and gave them comfort. Now, we're not ignoring the providence that turned a persecutor into a preacher. Certainly, there's no question that the peace that the church enjoyed was a direct result of that work. And yet the comfort of the Holy Spirit abounded among them, I believe, whether that had happened or not. The comfort of the Spirit is a precious and sweet thing, and God is the giver and the source of it. But in the second place, notice also the recipients, the means, and the occasion of the giving of the Holy Spirit. The recipients of the gift, the means, and the occasion Now, we've touched upon this last week, but in our understanding of the idea of the gift of the Spirit, this needs to be clearly understood. What is, or who are, the recipients of this gift of the Spirit? None other than all those who are justified in the blood of Christ. Everyone justified in Christ Jesus is a recipient of this gift of the Spirit. Turn to Romans chapter 8 and look with me, if you will, to this text. Romans 8, verses 1 and 2. (coughs) The apostle has been struggling with the doctrine of sin in a believer. In chapter 7, a man who loves the law of God and delights in it after the inward man, and yet finds working in his members another law, the law of sin and death, that brings him, in a sense, into captivity, that his body is called a body of death. And he groans in this body. He longs to be free of the sin that is so close to him that even when he wants to do good and tries, he finds evil present with him. And the thing he would do, he does not. And the thing he would not do, that he finds himself doing. O wretched man that I am, he says, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And he's leading us to the conclusive answer to that deliverance, He's bringing us to the point that he, he's going to say the ultimate deliverance from that which makes us groan together until now with all the creation is going to be the manifestation of the sons of God at the second coming of Christ when we re- enter the realms of glory. And until then, the believer is going to be struggling with this reality of sin remaining in him. And it's never going to be a happy thing. It's never going to be an easy thing. It's going to be at war until that day. And that is our ultimate confident hope, the blessed hope which will deliver us from this present evil world and from this body of sin. However, in the meantime, there is great encouragement and boldness and comfort for the believer who is still stuck in this mortal body And that comfort comes to him in no other context but in the giving of the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. And some translations go further. Some manuscripts include who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. But it doesn't matter because later in this same section that text is unquestioned for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus made me free from the law of sin and death so though I'm still in this body which has the remaining characteristics of the law of sin and death which still affect me the gospel as it is in Jesus has set me free from the condemnation of that sin and its death that comes upon that condemnation. And Christ Jesus, applied to me, has made me free from that law. So that as I walk by faith, I do not walk in the light of condemnation or dread or fear. I have been delivered from the wrath to come, and the tone of my life in bearing is an optimistic tone rather than a negative and pessimistic tone. ...for the law, but notice, of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. It is the spirit of God that is at work bringing this reality to me... ...and nowhere is he present in which this is not occurring. When he's laboring in applying Christ, he is bringing people into liberation... ...from the bondage of fear which held them all their days. So that when a man is justified and the condemnation cloud of his sin is removed from him in Christ Jesus, it is done so in the context of the law of the Spirit of life. Christ applied to the believer by the Spirit. And so there's an explicit, clear connection here between the gift of the Spirit and justification, and furthermore, the whole doctrine of adoption, which we'll see later in the latter part of this chapter, all of this principle of liberty and joy and comfort and boldness and the confidence and assurance of justification and adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, and have thought and confidence that he hears us and receives us, is made in connection with the gift of the Spirit. Wherever there is liberty from condemnation in the heart, there you will find the Holy Spirit. Turn again with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We have looked at a portion of this text in the past in order to set out the, the layout of our definition of the work of the Spirit. But this whole chapter speaks of the letter and the Spirit. And it speaks of the ministration of condemnation and the ministration of life as opposed to the ministration of death. So then we come to the latter part of chapter 3 in verse 15 and it says, Unto this day, whensoever Moses is read, a veil lies upon their heart. But whensoever it shall turn to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord, in verse 17, is the Spirit. And where the Spirit Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And so he's saying that the liberty from the condemnation and the death that accrued from that condemnation in the old covenant and in the administration of the letter, the covenant which they broke, the new covenant has changed that. God is providing in the terms of the new covenant that which his people could never have provided in his Son, God is providing liberation from condemnation and from death. So we call that the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And so we can rejoice that all those who are justified are made partakers of the Spirit and have the gift of the Spirit. Dear brethren, again we must emphasize, there is no such thing as a believer in Christ who does not possess the Holy Spirit and who does not walk in the liberty from condemnation which the Spirit of Christ alone delivers and ministers. You cannot be saved apart from the life and presence and working of the Holy Spirit in you. More than just regeneration, but the abiding presence and gift of that Spirit who more increasingly leads us into confidence and assurance in these areas. Look at the last verse in chapter 3 of Second Corinthians. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even as from the Lord the Spirit. And I believe that at least something of the intent of this verse is to show us the progressive expectation of a believer who grows increasingly as he beholds Christ's face in the gospel, as the Spirit is ministering these truths to him and increasing his perception of them, he's growing from one stage of glory into another, pursuing the day in which he will be utterly liberated from the bondage of this flesh and be made perfectly like his Lord. Remember the result of the Spirit of God's work in our definition? Conformity to Christ. That's what it results in. The spirit of truth, the ministrator of life through the truth of Christ on the ground of the righteousness of Christ resulting in conformity to Christ in the church. And here you have conformity to Christ growing and increasing by the spirit of the Lord. And so every believer, there's no such thing as a poor believer out here who's been saved from his sins but has not yet met the spirit of God or has him in his heart. There's no such thing as we have identified the gift with the baptism of the Spirit of a Christian who doesn't have the baptism. You cannot be one without the other. You cannot have one without the other. If you are baptized with or in or by the Spirit... You are given the gift of the Spirit. And the fruit of that increasingly will be a growing confidence of your freedom from condemnation and your acceptance with God. That is at the heart of Christian life, the Holy Spirit. Now those are the recipients. But in connection with this, the means and the occasion. How do you get this? What are the means and what is the occasion of the giving of the Spirit? And again, we repeat... It is upon repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. If you sit among us this morning and you're strangers to these things, perhaps you're visiting with us and curious about us. Maybe you'd like to know if there really is any such thing as the reality of God. Perhaps your own life has been a disappointment and a frustration to you and you would like to find if there's a religion someplace that's real and true, that works, not one that works temporarily, you've had that but one that works for eternity. Not one that simply gives you your temporal desires and makes you feel good for a time, but one that brings you into contact with a genuine, real article called God, the real God, and one that ministers to the deepest aspects and needs of the soul. Maybe you're here and you don't want anybody to know you're that serious about it, but secretly, deep down, you'd like to believe that somewhere there is truth and God is real. And it would be nice to know that this is the place, that what we're preaching is biblical truth, what the apostles preach, and that it's real. And if you could believe it would be real, it would free you from great bondage and confusion and darkness. You may be ashamed to admit it. Maybe you're afraid to talk about it. But that may be your case. Well, let me tell you that in the working of God, you may have the very presence of God himself, you, that is what you're missing that's why the darkness that's the explanation for the loneliness and the disillusionment and the confusion but in order to have God in you so that you know he's alive and real you must turn from your sins you must come to Christ you must release yourself from trusting in yourself and seeking to find a way to justify yourself and to find a way to save yourself And you must free yourself from all hope and trust in anything other than Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus who died for sinners. Jesus whose death satisfied the wrath of God for sinners. So that they need not, they must not ever do one thing in addition to that to do anything about their sins. They cannot, they must not. He has satisfied the demand. Their sins are laid on Him. And when they come to Him in faith, their sins are gone. They are received by God justified as though in the in the eyes of justification, just as if they had never sinned and were perfect. And yet they can never receive a bit of the glory and credit for this because they have not quit sinning. They could not quit sinning. They could never make up for their past sins even if they could quit sinning. It's all God's grace. It's all Christ's grace. And the true believer knows that clearly and simply. But unless you come to that recognition, and unless you release your confidence in yourself, your efforts to save yourself, your trust in anything in addition to or other than Christ, you will never have the Spirit, you can never have the Spirit. Upon repentance from sin and faith in Christ, will not turn because we read it last week, but you'll remember that in Acts chapter 2, verse 38 and following, Simon Peter, in that first sermon at Pentecost, said to the people, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's an irony here. Those who've never come to grips with their sinfulness before God who've never come to confess themselves as unworthy of God's grace, those who've not seen the truth, who are blinded by their pride, who think religion is an attachment to a life rather than the essence of a life, who think that following God is a matter of option or perhaps superstition, those who are still living in this web of their own self deceit they don't really have any desire for the Holy Spirit. The things of the Spirit do not entice them. They don't understand them. They cannot receive them. So it's an ironic thing that we are offering to a sinner who has no desire for the Holy Spirit, the very thing of which he has no desire. We're holding out for you that the result of repentance from your sin, turning away from your life of sin, and running and submitting to Christ's righteousness, that whole act will get you the Spirit of God. Is that what you want? You see, that's the irony. We're speaking to the ears of some who have no interest in that benefit. You don't know the Spirit. You have no taste of the Spirit. You have no conception of the sweetness and the liberty and the power and the life that's in God's Spirit. You live on the realm and in the realm and on the level of the flesh. And you think earthly. You're temporal minded. You do not comprehend. You cannot comprehend That we're speaking of eternal and spiritual things. And so when we say, if you come to Christ and turn from your sins, you'll get the Spirit. You're thinking, that sounds weird. That sounds, that's not what I want. I want a wife. I want freedom from my sicknesses. I want to be a macho male. I want success in business. I want to feel happy. Promise me that my life in this world will smooth out and I'll try Jesus. Promise me that I can get rid of my bad vices that are messing me up. For instance, my love of the bottle which keeps me from having keeping a good job, my addiction to drugs, my passion for illicit sexual relationships. Uh, promise me that I can somehow get freed from those things that are bugaboos and problems in my life. I'll come to Christ. But we promise you the Spirit of God, the dwelling of God. Now, there are other, those, those other things will find their way out of your life. But the essence of the promise of the gospel is, repent and believe, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You don't hear apostles holding out some sort of temporal advantages to people in the gospel. They don't peddle the gospel. And the apostle in Second Corinthians was very sensitive to that. Just before this chapter, he said, we are not as the many who pollute, corrupt, and cut into the Word of God and sell it as though it were pure, but we've diluted it and we're selling a bad product that's that's cheaper and yet gives us more profit. We're not doing that. We're speaking what we speak in a clear conscience before God. We preach Christ, not ourselves. But it is the temptation of many that unless they can receive a promise that some sort of temporal guarantees of good things can be given, they have no interest in things of the Spirit. And you see, that is the evidence and the proof that you need to be saved. That you have no interest in the Spirit. That's the problem. You don't love God. You don't know God. You don't want to know God. That's what makes you such a wretched sinner. That's why you're so guilty. That's why the wrath of God's upon you. He made you. You are His by right, and yet you have refused to be His in heart, and you stand as an enemy of His, And you don't even want the very blessed promise that is the possession of everyone who's come to him. What a wretched state you're in. And you're in such a wretched state that even these words have a hard time penetrating your conscience and making you grieve. You ought to be weeping. You ought to be wailing. You ought to be dreadfully afraid of what's coming upon you. You ought to be horrified that you don't know the God who made you. But you're not. Because the Spirit of God has not opened your heart And until he does, you'll not know it. We preach the gospel knowing that it is in the gospel preached that he does open hearts and our cry and prayer is that he will open yours. The time and the occasion of the receiving of the Spirit is upon repentance from sin and faith in Christ. And everyone that has come to Christ with pure faith, with honest repentance, has received the gift of the Holy Spirit. But in the third place, the ground of the gift of the Spirit? What is the foundation or the ground? And brethren, this is critical. It is not because you happen to link up with a group of supposed Christians who had the ability to impart it to you. It is not because, as we have said, that you have learned the technique. It is not because you were willing to submit your head to some hands of some magic potion people who are able to put put on to you a thing only God gives. It is not because you are good. It is not even because you want this. The ground, again, is Christ himself. You can never separate the work of the Holy Spirit from Christ. Briefly look again at at three texts of Scripture to see the multiple aspects of the foundation that Christ is in the giving of the Spirit. First, John chapter 7. The work of Christ. We read it before, but see it. John 7 37d. If any man thirst, let him do what? Let him come to me. Where are you going to get the Spirit? You're going to get it from Christ. Let him come to me and drink. He that believes me, as the Scripture has said, from within him shall flow rivers of living water. He that believes me, these things will flow from. But this spoke he of the Spirit, which they that believed on him were to receive For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. He had not finished the work of redemption for which he was sent. And until he finished that work, the Spirit could not be poured out in an abiding sense to the people of God. For whatever reason, that was God's plan. And under new covenant terms, until Christ had ascended and taken the seat... Of the right hand of the Father in heaven, the Spirit could not be and had not been given. And so upon the completion of Christ's redemptive work, where he sat down having finished it, now the Spirit is poured out on the church. And so the ground of his giving is the finished work of Christ. But in the second place, turn to John 14. The ground... And the basis and the foundation of our receiving the Spirit is what we've already read in verse 16. I will pray the Father. How does the church receive the Spirit? Jesus asks the Father to do it. You see it? Christ's intercession. His prayer to the Father... Give the Spirit to those that come to me. The Lord had promised to him that he would give him the heathen for his inheritance and that he would give him the Spirit without measure which he could pour out on the church and it is his prayers to the Father that secure it. He says, I will pray the Father and he shall give you. There's no question that his prayers would be answered. I will pray and the Father will give you. The source and giver is God of all comfort and the ground is the work and the prayers of Christ and then lastly the mediation of Christ which is connected with these intercessory prayers as we heard in Acts chapter 2 verse 33. You remember, it is he that has shed forth this which you both see and hear. He, in his mediatorial office, through his high priestly intercession, and as authoritative king of kings, has poured out the Holy Spirit. The ground of the Spirit's functioning and presence and gift is nothing but Christ himself. Now, you may think I'm saying that too much, but, dear brethren, I have grown up in a generation which did not understand the connection and can talk about the Spirit as though Jesus never came, never died, never rose, never ascended, never interceded. They, they peddle the Spirit as though they themselves are the ground of the peddling. Some would actually entice people to public meetings with the promise that the Holy Ghost will move on them if they come and will charge tickets and sell them promising that somehow in context with their ministry you can guarantee a blessing. I think that you, most of you that have been around a while don't need to have proof of that kind of generalization. It happens and happens in some of the more sordid ways, some of the most embarrassing ways, and we are invited to participate without which participation we are deemed as being divisive and unchristian and unloving. Brethren, what is our choice? I believe with my heart that to give public support for such a peddling would be to strike a blow at the very root of the cross itself and the heart of the gospel. It is not because we don't want to be a part of Christendom. It is not because we want to be alone and independent and unrelated to the greater church. It is the worst possible analysis of our motives. That is not the case. We would long to fellowship and cooperate. But it's in Christ and his gospel and nothing else. The spirit comes on the ground of Christ and I will resist until God gives me another Bible or better eyes to read mine. I'll resist by God's grace to my death the efforts to get me to leave Christ to go get a spirit that's not Christ. Dear brethren, beware. It's one of the devil's tricks. The devil hates above all things the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ substituting himself for sinners. He despises that subject and doctrine. If he can get you to experience every conceivable form of religious experience other than falling at your feet before the cross and finding your sins washed away in Christ, he'll do it. Beware of him. Don't leave the gospel, even for a purported experience with the Spirit. But in the fourth place, notice the essence Of the gift of the Spirit. We've already stated it, and I believe that for time's sake I'll only mention the text because you're familiar with them, most of you, in Ezekiel chapter 36 and again in chapter 37. In the promise of God regarding the new covenant in the blood of Christ, the church was to expect the special presence of God dwelling with his people through the Holy Spirit that he would put into their heart spirit within them I will be their God they will be my people I will dwell in their midst and that's the essence of the gift of the Spirit when you boil it down what God is giving is himself see that's what makes this such a precious thing we're speaking of God in us and that's corporate and it's individual your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit You are the dwelling place of God. And the church is the temple of God that heightens the value and the worth of the subject. We are the place of God's special presence. Now, someone may ask, Pastor, I see that in the scripture. I hear you say it. What's that like? What does that mean? How is it supposed to be perceived? I don't know what that looks like or smells like or feels like. I can't figure that. What does it mean for God to live in me? I think that must be true. I certainly want it. But there's so little in me that feels that. How am I going to know? And I'm asking that question because I believe that silently and secretly it is a genuine question from a lot of people. And a lot of people who have come to a profession of faith in Christ and are members of Christ's church, down deep, aren't sure what this means, experientially. But they don't know how to talk about it because it would come across as though somehow they missed the whole point and they're afraid that others may raise the eyebrow and look askew. What is it like, or how do I know, or how do I perceive that God lives in me? Are these just words? Am I supposed to simply believe these words, and when there's no reality in it, how do I get it so I know it? It's the source of many of your struggles with assurance, is it not? That often you just wonder where God is. And you wonder, and it's a real wondering. I mean, it's a real struggle. You're not just... We don't pass that off here by saying, well, you live by faith, not by feelings. That's true, but... That doesn't satisfy what you're asking. Some of you already know that. You already have decided to live by faith, and what you're saying is, I don't have any faith either. I have a hard time believing, and the Scriptures describe this as seeing him who is invisible, does it not? There's something of tasting the Lord, seeing the Lord, knowing his felt presence that we long to have, and many of us know very little about it. Well, how am I going to answer the question? How do we know How do we perceive? What's it like if God lives in me? I have to give you the biblical answer. You know it and perceive it by faith. I can't offer you a carnal answer. I can't say, well, I'll describe it this way. When you have it, you'll know it because these are the manifestations. No, I can't do that. I can say this. That when you come with a humble heart before Christ and receive him by faith and submit to his word and His authority, when you turn from your sins and trust in Him alone for deliverance, when you grieve over your wickedness and you rejoice in the glory of God, you'll know. You'll know. See, Pastor, that makes me think I'm not a Christian because I'm not sure, I don't know. Brethren, I'm just saying to you that all I can offer is the biblical doctrine that we walk by faith, not by sight and much far than by feeling there is a feeling there is a feltness that's better felt than felt but I don't know how to describe it and I would not hold out some sort of an image for you it's different for different people I don't know how to promote such a thing without creating great problems and great grief and great confusion in the church and since my Bible as far as I can say see doesn't describe it Be it far from me. Brethren, there's a mystery here. There's something about this I can't tread upon. And I would beg you not to. I would say this, that you are not going to be able with confidence to speak of an experiential communion with God in the way some of you continue to read your Bible and pray. You're not going to find it in some sort of shortcut magic weekend in which you finally get serious and start crying, and after 12 minutes, God comes and proves himself. This is going to be through the rigors of a heart that proves by its behavior that it wants this more than anything else. God does not dispense around feelings to people who would treat them unworthily and misuse them if they had them. If your goal is the feeling, it may be one of the last things God will ever let you have, and that will be a gracious thing if we withhold that feeling until your goal is not the feeling, but the person. When you begin to cry and consistently cry, Lord, I thirst not for the result of you, but for you. Not for what is in your hand, but for your hand. Not for your the benefits that I might have received carnally from your presence, but Lord, I want your heart beating next to mine. I don't even know all that that means, but I want you. I'm dry and thirsty as a weary land, O oh, Lord, I thirst for you. That's when let him that thirst come to me and I'll give him to drink and out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. What I'm suggesting is that this general absence of a sense of the presence of God among us is not the result of a lack of reality of such a thing. It's the result of a sinful people, of a negligent, lazy, and spoiled generation. Dear brethren, I do not know how to make it happen or predict it, but I know there are certain conditions that must be met or it is not going to develop. And I know that if those conditions are met, that God is faithful to his promise. You say, Pastor, it sounds like, again, it's a salvation by works. Well, it may sound like that. I didn't say it's salvation by works, but I'll guarantee you it's not a salvation apart from works. Where there's not diligent seeking after these things as hid treasures, there's not a discovery of them. So I lay before you that the essence is that God himself abides with us by his Spirit. And I desire to know it more than I know it. I desire to feel it more than I feel it. I desire it to have an effect on my countenance more than it has an effect on my countenance and on my tongue and on every other part of me. I do not profess even to know what that would be like. But I tell you, I want more of the perception of the reality of God's presence than I now possess. And I'm not unthankful for that which th- that I do possess. But I'm hungry for more of that which I've tasted. And I hope that you are too. If you're not, I'm afraid for your profession. But in the fifth place, what is the nature of the abiding presence or the gift of the Spirit? Now another has suggested that this, is, this would be called the filial nature. I'm just saying the nature, and it is this. The Spirit that is ours is the spirit of God's Son. He is the spirit of adoption. Turn again to Romans chapter 8. We alluded to it briefly. Now let us look at it. We not take the time today to expound the doctrine of adoption, but I will say to you, brethren, that this is of the nature of the work of the Spirit. Registered upon the conscience of, of everyone who has the Spirit, of everyone that believes upon Christ and has come to Him by faith, registered in the deepest recesses of every believing heart is this reality the Spirit of adoption. Verse 14. Well, I think, I think it would be better if we went back up to verse 9. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. But if any man hath not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of you. And then down in verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. The very nature or fruit, essential and automatic, and flowing from the leading of the Spirit is sonship. It's part and parcel of the Spirit's work. Sonship. And as you've heard, as we've said in this place, that includes males and females. Sonship. The sons and daughters of God are joint heirs as though they are all firstborn children. They are joint heirs with Christ and the glory of God as Legally speaking, you ladies are sons of God. As to your privileges in the kingdom of Christ, you are sons of God. As to the blessing of, in- of inheritance, you are sons of God by the Spirit. And then read further in verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage of gan unto fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry Abba. Father. And that word Abba, as you know, that Aramaic term is a term of tender daddy. It's that term that you cry to God, not, not in, irreverently, but as a child who has no thought that his father is going to hurt him if he crawls up upon his lap and seeks his help. It's that relationship that God pours out in our heart, that attitude he puts in us by his spirit that makes us feel that we ought to call him Father. And I'll tell you this, brethren, I can speak from experience at this point. The one or two, there have been one or two threads of common experience in my life that have helped me maintain assurance through the years and the doubts. The times when I wondered if I were a Christian because of backsliding, etc. And one of those threads that has been consistent from the beginning, there has been a natural sense in me to call upon God my Father consistently. I have never felt any different but that He was my Father. I have gone to him as my father from the beginning. And every time I slid back, and every time I fell into sin, and every time I was grieved over myself, I've gone to him and said, Father. It was as natural as breathing to me. From the time God saved me, it was built into my system that I saw myself related to him as my father. I did not know it that way, and I don't say that I had a relationship with my earthly father that would be be conducive to that assumption. I was not cultivated to assume that fathers were always near and tender and close and supportive. But somehow it never occurred to me after God saved me that God wasn't that way. He's put into me the spirit of adoption whereby I have consistently been enabled without putting it on to cry, Abba my father. And I have gone to my father in heaven for every conceivable kind of perceived need in my life. And never have I gone with the sense that he wouldn't listen. I, I see that as nothing else but the work of the Spirit of God in me in applying Christ to me and giving me the Spirit of adoption. And it's been a blessed, consistent thing. It's helped me immensely over lots of hurdles in the years past and even in my current experience. We have the Spirit of God. We have received the Spirit of adoption. You see, this is the nature of this reception of this gift of the Spirit. He's the Spirit of adoption whereby we cry, father. Verse 16 the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are what? Children of God. And if children then heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ and so forth. The spirit of God has come and by nature this gift has intimately connected us with God as his children. Apart from the spirit coming you would not relate to God as father, daddy, father. You would be like the Roman Catholic girl I met on the bus in Alabama as a high school student. No, as a college student. My mom got very sick and had to have surgery. I was a thousand miles away and had no money. And uh, I didn't tell anybody. I asked God if He would help me find a way, and I w- did not want to borrow it from the bank, but I was willing. And one of my friends, who was very close, came by the room and said, uh, how's your mom and dad doing? I said, well, they're doing fine. I'd appreciate you praying for mom. She's in the hospital. He said, you know, I had a feeling you have looked kind of funny lately. And uh, he said, what's the problem? I said, she's having surgery. And uh, he said, uh, why aren't you going out to see her? I said, well, I just, you know, just waiting on the Lord and not sure what would be the wisest thing and ashamed to tell him that I was didn't have enough money. And he said, well, you're going to see your mother. And so he Gave, went and found out himself what their cost was, and he sent me, I think I rode the bus both ways, from Abilene, Texas to Chattanooga, Tennessee, 950 some odd miles each way. And On that bus trip, afforded me by this friend, I, I was on the way back, and there, there was this girl that got on the bus. I was a freshman in college, and I had never seen a more beautiful girl, and I was attracted to her. I wasn't married in the t- at the time. And, I think my wife would allow me to recollect that there was a time when I was looking for a wife, and there were some girls that walked by that I noticed. And on the bus, uh, I looked at her. She got on the bus, she said, about three seats away. And uh, I, I said, boy, I, I just love to meet that girl. That, there's something about her this But I didn't get to meet her. She got off the bus in North Alabama. I kept going to Chattanooga. Well, spent the weekend there, the Easter weekend, and late on Sunday night I had to catch a bus back to Texas. I got on the bus, went back through Alabama. She got on the same bus in the same town and sat right behind me. Well, I just prayed and prayed. But something had happened to me over the weekend that I had no interest at all in striking up a romance with her. I wanted to tell her about Christ. I had this, this almost irresistible, powerful impression. And so I said, Lord, open the door somehow. And the way he did was I needed to find out what time it was. I didn't wear a watch, and so I asked what time it was. And she leaned forward and said, It's so-and-so time. Where are you headed? And there we went, and we sat together then for a long period on the bus talking and I, as soon as we had to talking I, she said what have you been doing I told her what I'd been doing where I was going to school and what I was pursuing in my life and we started talking about Easter Sunday and the significance of all that and when I got to the point about God who knows me and loves me and my personal Savior she looked puzzled and she said I don't I don't know what what do you mean personal Savior she said I don't have that conception of God I wish I did and I said, What do you mean? Where do you go to church? And she said, Well, I'm a Roman Catholic. And I said, You don't believe in a personal relationship? She said, No, no. She said, God is somebody way out there. I would never talk directly to God. God is terrible and fearful and big and scary. Well, brethren, he is all that. But the the registration in the conscience of a tender hearted freshman in college who believed the gospel was that for me, he wasn't that way. For me, he was tender and close and near and a father. And that became the subject and essence of our witness time together as I pled with her. I gave her the tracts in my pocket. I quoted scriptures. I think I may have given her my Bible because she didn't have a Bible in her possession, didn't own a Bible. Her church did not think that was necessary. And that was way back even before... Uh, Vatican II had taken good uh, hold on things and people started thinking you could carry a Bible as a Catholic. And so she began to think and she said, I wish I had that relationship with God. I wish, but I'm scared to talk to God. I'm scared to approach God. What I'm saying is that when God saves a sinner, he puts at the central register of his consciousness, sonship. He is by nature the spirit of adoption. Whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And that's of the essence of sweetness and preciousness and blessedness. Well, let me just make a theological point and then seek to draw a couple of implications because our time is ended. Where would we place this doctrine of the gift of the Spirit if we were trying to work out a systematic theology? If you're familiar with the terms in theology, the Ordo Salutis or the Order of Salvation, the theological or logical order of God's application of redemption to his people. If you read a theology, you might come across those terms where we try to organize in our thinking the order of events in the reception of the blessings of God through Christ. What comes first? Uh, and it's one of the issues of our day in evangelicalism that many put the doctrine of regeneration, when the Spirit of God makes us dead sinner alive, they put it, subsequent to the doctrine of faith and repentance and justification they will say if you will repent and believe then you will be born again and it's common terminology but it is imprecise terminology and it can lead to great error especially to the assumption that the spirit of god's work upon me is by result of my work first i believe then the spirit comes and makes me alive The biblical doctrine reverses the order, that it is the Spirit's work of regeneration through which faith is imparted, repentance is given as a grace that I enact by the work of the Spirit, and justification comes upon one who has been awakened by the Spirit in sovereign grace. And so when the order of things is laid out, where would we put the gift of the Spirit? We know where regeneration occurs. It's at the very outset of your experience in the application of redemption. But where would we place the gift? Well, we would place it identical to justification and adoption. The Holy Spirit is given to abide, though he is present at work upon the soul at the very initial experience of new life, and then faith and repentance come, and then we are justified by faith and receive, by virtue of that, the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry "Abba, Father. And that's just for those who would like to understand this a bit better, and the implication of that understanding is that when a man-centered and man-glorifying evangelism offers to men the option and the power to do the things which will guarantee certain results from God and put it, puts it into the hands of man to manipulate God, we may counter with the biblical doctrine of a proper order of the application of redemption. It's very important, though you may think you don't want to know all that. It is critical. You're not born again because you believe. You believe because you're born again. You don't repent so that you may be born again. People who are dead in their sins don't repent. They don't know God, they don't come to God. You have to call them out of the tomb first before they can walk out. You have to waken them with your voice, and that's what God has done. Well, let me draw some implications. And we'll have to wait till the next time to deal with all the benefits. And those are precious indeed. First of all, just from what we've seen, dear brethren, we may conclude that there is no higher privilege and to have the Spirit of God living within you. There is nothing better than that. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. There is no higher privilege than for you sitting here this morning to be considered as a child of God. There's nothing to be sought after more than that. With all your soul, my dear friend, who may be outside of Christ, you must seek this, to be one of God's children. You are not among all God's children if you've not come to Christ. All these benefits for the forests and the deers and the whales and all these emphases that we're all God's children, brethren, not really. There are children of God and there are children of the devil and there's nothing in between. And there are many who go in the broad way who are not children of God. But those that come to God through Christ are God's children. You're not God's son. You're not God's daughter if you haven't come to Christ. But if you have, you are the child of God. And the apostle understood it when he said, What manner of love that we should be called the sons of God a highest possible privilege. You had no right to it. You forfeited that in your sin. You don't deserve any part of it, and yet God has been willing to be your God and Father, not to be ashamed of you. You're a child of God. Well, what should that produce? Well, first of all, it should produce the essence of thanksgiving and Christ. Your life ought to be toned by that gratitude and worship. Not worship of fear, but worship of thanks. Worship of liberation. Worship of joy. You shouldn't have to be motivated from outside. This inside ought to cause you to worship. This ought to make you grieve when you even catch yourself in the middle of the second verse and you haven't even noticed the words that you've been singing. And stop and say, Lord, this is unworthy of what you've done for me. Don't waste the rest of the hymn moaning, but immediately correct the problem and begin to cry out to God with your whole heart and voice with a spirit of thanksgiving and praise but in addition to that dear brethren with such a high privilege how ought you to be living your life and I'm not even at this point emphasizing the ethical content though we harp on that I wonder if you are living up to the privileges that are yours I wonder if you're seeing them and thinking of them and living in the light of them I wonder if you view yourself as a son of God As an heir, joint heir with Christ. If you've come to Christ, you know what you have access to? You can pray, and your Father will hear you. Some of you act as though God doesn't want to hear you talk. Some of you act as though if you prayed, it sort of embarrassed God, and He wouldn't want to be known to. If you're saved, God is not ashamed to be called your Father. And God delights in his children to come and ask good things of them. He has promised that he would give them, especially his spirit. Do you see yourself as one in whom God the Father delights? I ask you this question the way the Lord Jesus did. Which of you, being evil, know how to give, don't know how to give good gifts to your children? The way you fellows are. You selfish and proud and lazy men, don't you delight in your little ones? Is there anything that you would have in your power for their good that you would withhold from them? Not I. And I'm a selfish and proud man at heart. And yet my children, if I can give it, I delight in giving good things to them. And it's seldom that they come asking for good things that I turn them away. Now, sometimes in my sin and in my negligence and in my selfishness, I'm gruff and I'm short. And some of us grew up in homes like that where we felt we had no access to our fathers. We would never ask for anything of our fathers. But I tell you, that's not our God. And you've got to learn to discipline your thinking and your view of yourself in the light of what the Scripture says, and not in the light of what your daddy said. Our God is not our father's. Our God is good and gracious and loves His children and delights in them. And you are worth more to Him than many of you think you're worth, and much more worth than you are to yourself. And I tell you, you're worth more than many sparrows. He knows that the hairs of your head, and He is for you for good. And some of you are living as though that you can't take a three-step without getting nailed. And we're not suggesting that we are not to walk with care. We're not counteracting what we've preached in other texts of Scripture regarding the fear of the Lord. But we're saying that it's an evangelical, it's a gospel fear. It is a fear rooted in God's saving grace. And it's a fear rooted in God's wonderful benevolence to us. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. That makes us tremble. I would like to lift some of you out of the doldrums of looking at yourself so long that you've forgotten how your Father feels toward you. I would like to look into the face of some who are sick and tired of your countenance being the way it is. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of mine when it's down. And it's unworthy of a child of God. Brethren, it doesn't take long. It doesn't take many seconds to exercise the faith of the Scripture in turning that countenance inside out. I mean in the throes of your complaining and frustration and fears that God has left you. It doesn't take long to get right back to the cross, witness the blood shed freely for you there, lay claims on what God has been willing to do for you, and say, Father, bless me too. Dear brethren, if you're not doing that on a regular basis, Frequently, you are missing what is yours by right as a child of God. I'm not talking Cadillacs. I'm not talking big budgets. I'm talking the sweet presence of God's favor in the heart. And I tell you, when you start walking in the light of that gospel kind of reality, your worship will be transformed, the way you treat your brethren will be transformed, and your countenance will not be able to resist the glow. And I don't know how to describe it other than to say that when the Spirit of God is very precious and real, the saints know what it means to rejoice and to be filled with joy and peace in believing. Well, lastly, you who are not Christ, you must see, may God help you to see, what your condition and state is without the Spirit of God. May you come to understand that you are living in death. You're living in the darkness. Your life has no purpose, no meaning. There is no way you can point to evidence that you have a real purposeful existence apart from the presence of God as your Father, of Christ as your Redeemer. If you can't testify to that and give evidence of that, you are of all people most to be pitied. May God give you grace to desire. May the Lord put in our hearts to desire to know Him and to have Him living among us. And may God show you the way to come to Christ, confess your sin, and lay hold upon God's free offer of Christ to you, and to claim him as your Lord. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do that, and know what it means to be God's son, and to have the Spirit of God living within you. Let us pray. Our Father, we would confess our sins in having not experienced and let ourselves rejoice in what you've done. Lord, we are ashamed that so much of our speech has been lacking in the joy and in the gratitude and in the praise that ought to be yours by right, and that certainly ought to come from these redeemed lips. O God, forgive us for our negligence, for our insistence upon negativism, our insistence upon pessimism, our insistence upon looking for something wrong, our continued tenacity in holding on to our old patterns. O God, forgive us and free us and cleanse us from those things and fill us with all joy and peace in believing in the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, these are simple requests, and we confess that there's nothing about us that deserves to have them answered. But have you not bidden us to come and ask of you good things, and in your Son registered your stamp of approval upon us as our Father? Have you not pledged yourself to us, O God, here now and in the days to come? Show the evidences of that grace in an increased sweet countenance among your people and a walking in peace and joy. Lord God, do a work here. May your Spirit come and may any who are strangers to grace not live out their days and face you in judgment apart from coming to Christ. O Lord God, the Spirit, Awaken sleeping blind hearts and eyes and set them free in Christ and build this church up in the power and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.